Welcome to episode 48 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. Uh, this year we're talking about 1995, where Braveheart kind of came in at the last minute and won Best Picture and Best Director. Uh, but there were so many great movies that came out that year that were not that that were, were nowhere near the Oscar race, like To Die For and Dolores Claiborne. And we're going to talk about those two because they were so good. And Seven, of course, Fincher Seven. Um, we'll talk about those. And there were, it was a pretty good year for women's roles, not with the Oscar race, not necessarily with the box office, but Hollywood was making some pretty great movies, I thought. Um, anyway, uh, Braveheart, directed by Mel Gibson, made a whole bunch of money, was kind of favorited by the public. But as we headed into the Oscar race of, of, uh, of this year... Sense and Sensibility had won the Golden Globe, where Mel Gibson had won Best Director. Apollo 13 was shut out at the Golden Globes, and it probably had entered just like A Few Good Men, which was overtaken by Scent of a Woman. Uh, Apollo 13 had entered the uh, the Golden Globes being the frontrunner to win, and, and everybody had thought that it was going to win there. It did go on to become one of the few movies to win the PGA, the Producers Guild, the Screen Actors Guild Ensemble Award, and the DGA, and not win Best Picture. That's only happened a couple of times, and this was one of those times. And somehow, in the, at the end of the day, uh, Mel Gibson and Braveheart triumphed over Apollo 13, uh, Sense and Sensibility, Babe, uh, and Il Postino. So... That's 1995 snapshot of Best Picture. Our our readers did want us to go into um, Best Actress that year, which we'll do also a little bit later. It's amazing. I'm looking now at, at um, Apollo 13, only one Best Film Editing and Best Sound, and it had been nominated some pretty, pretty you know, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best uh, Screenplay, uh, Best Original Score, and two two acting nominations for Ed Harris and Kathleen Quinlan. The only one that missed out on was um, Ron, Ron Howard, right? And that that always is like, that's like the death knell. If your movie is nominated for Best Picture but not nominated for Best Director, it's like over. Unless you're Ben Affleck, but unless unless the the, like one or two exceptions, or um, or driving Miss Daisy, or driving Miss Daisy, but yeah, Yeah. for the most part, what is interesting about this year, and I couldn't read about it in Inside Oscar because this is actually 1994 was the last year they did Inside Oscar, and then they did Inside Oscar two, which I can't find my copy of at the moment, but they Mm. carry on with Braveheart, so I I had to try to find that, but I haven't been able to, but. An interesting thing happened, and I would not I would not put it past a kind of whisper campaign against Apollo 13 that year, but sometime in between the beginning of Oscar season and the time the ballots went in, Apollo 13 was dead as a doornail, and Braveheart was the movie to beat. It just happened like that. It used to sometimes happen that way with the Oscar race. You don't often see a, a changing horses midstream like that. Um, especially nowadays. I think the last time we saw something that significant was the social network uh, winning everything and then suddenly the King's Speech taking over and and beating it. But even in that instance, it doesn't compare because Apollo 13 went on to win all the big Guild Awards. Braveheart still won the Oscar. I think it has to do, me personally, I think it has to do with Mel Gibson himself. And as as the Oscar race wore on, just like Ben Affleck, just like any other really affable, charming, charismatic actor in the race, they just have to show up in a room and they light it up, you know, and I think that's how he could have maybe uh, taken it over, his good looks and, you know. 
And at yeah, that point, say, well, say whatever you want about um, about um, Ron Howard. He's, by all accounts, a, a very nice man. He's not exactly one who, who lights up a room in the right. same way. Right. He's not a good-looking star like that. And um, I, I'm guessing... Now, Gibson hadn't, hadn't established any sort of bad reputation yet either. He hadn't... None of that had come out yet. Nobody really knew who he would become or, or who he already was, but nobody found out yet. Yeah. It was a surprise that Braveheart won, though. I mean, people weren't, weren't going to go with Apollo 13 because it didn't have a director nomination. The other strong movie was Sense and Sensibility, which also didn't have a director nomination. So, you know, there wasn't another movie that could overtake Braveheart. It was the only one uh, at a time when they really did pay attention to the director's branch. Um, but the weird thing is, is Ron Howard still won the DGA, so they didn't really get a chance to see Mel Gibson, you know, be toasted the same way, say, Ben Affleck was last year. He was kind of on the outs, yet somehow, and this is the one thing the readers, everybody who listen, who's listening to this podcast right now, everybody who I tw- who read about it on Twitter, everybody in the comment section is going to be screaming, you idiots! It was the first year they sent out screeners to the Academy. That's why Braveheart won. And yes, excuse me, listeners, you're correct. This is the one, like big elephant in the room we're overlooking it was the first year that they sent out screeners and that screener was braveheart so that is a really good possibility as to why it, it did win i i'm surprised to hear that i thought that there were screeners as far back as like 1989 to 1990 maybe not on a maybe maybe it was only a few movies so maybe it wasn't an industry-wide thing and maybe maybe every every movie wasn't doing it but i i'm pretty sure that that there were VHS screeners being sent out. Mm. Well, according but, but, to everybody but, but who's... It may be the first time a DVD screener can come out because it would be about the time that DVDs first were introduced. No. Maybe that... oh, that's not what people are saying. Well, it's possible. Yeah, actually, yeah, you're right. It could be DVDs that they're talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Yeah. Because they had VHS in the 80s. Yeah, and I just, I just, I, I, I seem to remember, I have to go back and look, but I, I'm pretty sure that there were other movies. Like, for instance, um... There was a Daniel Day-Lewis movie. The, I think My Left Foot was on VHS screener that they sent out. Pretty, I'm almost, I'm yeah, pretty sure about that. Well, anyway, well, that's what everybody check. says. But anyway, yeah, it, but um, it can make a big difference because, uh, and also Braveheart would have been a movie that would have played, played pretty well on, on DVD, I think. I don't, um, I don't know, though. So, so epic. Usually those epic movies... Um, you know, when you shrink them to the small screen, they lose Well, it something. says here on this article in Movie Phone, which I don't know if we can trust it, because basically the Oscar... Oh, it's Tom O'Neill, so he would know. Okay, sorry, Tom. I didn't mean to insult. I was going to say basically it's all a snake eating its own tail. But Tom O'Neill says in this article that Braveheart was the first um, film by the first major Oscar contender ever to send out screeners to voters. So they sent out... Maybe people... Yeah, that was the first major Oscar contender to ever send out screeners to voters. With Crash, Crash was the one that had the DVDs sent to them. Right. And maybe the key word there is major Oscar contender. Because I I know that there were other movies in the past, but they were more uh, independent movies. And the reason that they sent out screeners is because that was probably the only way that you could see those movies. Well, I don't know, though, Ryan. I think that it wasn't wasn't practiced then to send out screeners. Mm -hmm. I think that they they took them to the, the way they did the DGA. They took them to the theater. They relied on Academy screenings for voting. And that this was the first time where it really was taken into the home. Because I know it's a late a late game, playing that mm-hmm. way. Playing the Oscars that way is pretty late. For it to be happening in 1995 makes sense. 
you know. Right. And but you know, I'm I do do remember I'm, and this I'm certain about this, Dead Poet Society, they sent out VHS screeners and it really irritated people because at the at the bottom of the screener they had a uh, one of those uh um captions going along the bottom saying how many Golden Globe nominations it had been nominated for and then the movie would stop three or four times during the movie and it would give a pe- give people a warning about piracy instead of just having a warning at the beginning of the screener the movie would stop entirely and they would have a, a screen come up and they, they would warn people not to not to copy the VHS tape and that was Dead Poet Society in 1989 and I know that I well, that's it wasn't for as, certain that I read people that. weren't really seeing movies at home as much back then as they were starting to in the mid 90s and now of mm-hmm. course that's the only practically the only way they see movies but back mm-hmm. then they were still we still had this this idea that you it has to be seen on the big screen to be appreciated mm-hmm. you know and if you see it on a screener for instance braveheart is epic in scope and that's why it's so ironic that it, if they're saying it comes down to screeners uh to me it's ironic because it that is a movie that seems like of all of them that would benefit from the big screen. To me, Sense and Sensibility is the one that would benefit from being on a screener because it's such a good movie. And if it, if voters had gotten copies of that movie, it, it might have had a chance. But again, you're dealing with no director. Mm-hmm. Mel Gibson and Braveheart had. And it also made a whole bunch of money, lest we forget. It was the most popular movie, I think, other than Babe of the five at the box office. That's what I was going to say. It's easy for us to sort of dismiss it because I don't think any of us really think very highly of Braveheart anymore. But it was really well liked at the time, and there are still people now who really, really love it. And there's a, I think there was an interesting sort of story behind it and its making. Um, it was almost sort of an underdog story because Mel Gibson had to work really hard just to get the movie made. He had to agree to be in it for starters, and then they tried to get him to do another Lethal Weapon movie in order to distribute it for him. He refused to, so it wasn't like yeah, it's a it's a huge movie, but it's it's also sort of a passion project, and I think that element plus the fact that people just plain like it. It's one of those movies that I can't explain it, but people love it, and it's hard to it's hard to dismiss that. Are you in the habit of riding off in the rain with strangers? It's the best way to make you leave. <laughs> well, if I can ever work up the courage to ask you again, I'll send you a written warning first. Oh, it wouldn't do you much good. I can't read. Can you not? Yeah. Well, that's something we shall have to remedy, isn't it? Are you going to teach me to read them? If you like. Hey. And what language? <sighs> Are you sure enough now? That's right. Are you impressed yet? No. Why should I be? Parce que chaque jour, j'ai pensé à toi. Do that stance on your head and I'll be impressed. I might kill the fly up, but I'll try. Oh, God, you certainly didn't learn any manners on your travels. Well, the French and the Romans have far worse manners than I. You've been to Rome? My uncle took me on a pilgrimage. What was it like? Rien qui approchait d'abord. What does that mean? But I'm long here.
I just have to be quiet about it because I'm I must be I might be really mixed up, but it just seems to me like that I don't I don't I don't really I'm gonna have to have like a I'm gonna have to fight with Tom O'Neill about this if he says that it was well the no first you movie can that, you can actually fight with the readers because yeah. they're the ones who keep telling me this I I really mm-hmm. don't care I don't think of yeah. it that way but that's what yeah. they all think so if you want to take it on with them I think it's kind of a waste of your time but if you do well I I, I it's not even taking it on with them I can I can cite them proof of it I have there's there's books that I can cite them. Uh, citations about where where they send out screeners for other movies uh, for um, my left foot. But it might not be Deadpool. that they sent out to every Academy member because that's really expensive to do. Even now it's expensive. Yeah. It's really hard to get a, a distributor to, to pony up the dough to send a screener to every voting member. Maybe mm-hmm. they sent it to select groups, you know, maybe but that not. could be, yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe exactly. That could very well be that, um, sending out screeners to, to 5,000 or whatever it was, Academy members, that's a hugely expensive. And if mm-hmm. they're saying Braveheart did it, you know, then that makes sense. I mean, could it really be that the voters only saw Braveheart and they voted for it? Uh, you mean because they were able to? All of them were able to see it at home. All of them were able to see it at their leisure instead of having to go out to a theater to see it. Yeah, um, I, I think what I, I could have. You know, I I think so because I really think in a movie in a, in a year when there are so many strong movies, that in a, and also in the year when there were only five best picture nominees. This is my theory that when 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 you have a situation where Rocky can beat Network and All the President's Men, I don't think that Rocky gets seventy percent of the Academy vote. I think Rocky gets twenty one percent of the vote and the other movies get like 19 percent and 20 percent and 18 percent and rocky just barely barely wins and i think think braveheart probably just barely barely won with maybe 21 or 25 percent of the of the support of the academy and i think probably 75 percent of the academy were probably the same way we are like what the fuck you know i really do feel like most of the membership didn't didn't vote for braveheart but but it it is true that it was a very popular movie and even now people when i say that i don't like it because i just watched it people say oh my god i can't believe you didn't like braveheart i loved that movie you know and and they they bring up the whole you know freedom thing how he's screaming about freedom and you know what a big deal that is but man i tried to watch that movie let's just talk about braveheart for a minute Mm-hmm. Just on its own merits. You yeah, mean. on its own merits. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I don't know who here likes it more or less, but for me, I felt like that that was three hours of my life I'd never get back. <laughs> it, <was> like, <laughs> it went on and on and on and on. It couldn't have been more boring to me. Nothing about it interested me at all. I was mildly interested in the beginning with the little bit of the wedding thing going on. But after that, it was like, you know, that plight of him, William Wallace, you know, just to me... It wasn't worth three hour a three hour movie of all these epic violent battle scenes. It lost me, and it, it, and I never really you know recovered. That's my opinion of Braveheart. I don't think it's a bad movie. It's just to me, it's not as good, and it's just as boring as Apollo thirteen. You know, they're both about the same. On that. <laughs> oh no, I don't think Apollo thirteen is boring. I really, I'm going to stand up for Apollo All right. thirteen. Well, let's I, stay. I on. like that's how much I hate Braveheart. Is I think Apollo thirteen is better. <laughs> All right, let's hear you talk about better. how much you hate Braveheart. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I, you wondered who, which of us likes it least. I mean, I'm sure that I like it least. You can pick a, <laughs> find a thousand people, and I will like it the least. I'll be number one thousand as far as you know. I, well, I think Craig said that he he had liked it when it first came out, right? So that's something. Yeah, I liked it as long as there. 
as along with everybody else when it first came out, and then I tried rewatching it again, and it was it was probably the fourth three hour movie from 1995 I sat down to watch, and I made it about an hour in. I'm like, I can't do it. I just I'm tired of looking at Mel with his stupid wig and his stupid skirt, and uh, I don't care about this story. And I, I was never convinced for a second that it wasn't Mel Gibson on the screen. Right. It was always Mel Gibson. It was never William Wallace. And you know. You look at a movie like Lawrence of Arabia, and it's like, of course, it's obviously Peter O'Toole, but it's better than that. It's it's more than that. It's Peter O'Toole, and it's it's Lawrence all at the same time. And I, and, and Mel just didn't have the have the chops to be able to do that for me. Hmm. I only knew Mel Gibson at the time. This is the time of this is this is these are getting into the years 1995, 96, 97. When I have a when I start to have the movies disconnect as, as far as what year they came out because I wasn't living in the United States. I, and so the movies that filtered to me I weren't all I, I wasn't seeing them in conjunction with each other. I didn't really see Apollo 13 versus Braveheart versus Babe. I wasn't keeping up with the Oscar so much, and I wasn't seeing them in the sequence that most people were seeing them. Sometimes I would even see a movie like a year or two after it was released in America mm-hmm. before it would come to Thailand. You know, and so I I didn't really see the movies in competition head to head like a lot of people were back then. And so when I saw Braveheart, I was also disconnected to the cultural discussion that was going on. And so I missed entirely if there was any stuff in the news about how Braveheart was, was homophobic about the way they depicted the, the son of the king and everything, being so, so mincy and everything, and then they throw his lover out the window. Uh, as soon as it got to that part in the movie, I had not read it about any of that, but as soon as... I, the movie was already leaving a bad taste in my mouth when I saw it in Thailand, but when it got to that part, I don't, I don't think it, that's when I even finished it. I think we had to turn it off because oh. it left such an ugly taste in my mouth that I didn't, have, I didn't even see the end of it the first time I watched it. Oh, because I could just tell that it was a, something was really ugly about who the 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 the, the uh, attitude behind this movie? It seemed also really racist to me. It seemed really racist against uh, the British. You know, I know that that was the whole kind of the whole point that they were trying to break away and all that kind of stuff. But then I found out much later about how really historically inaccurate it was to the point of being absurdly exaggeratedly that's what michael was saying that it was he had looked up and he said it just was so bad to satisfy whatever story mel gibson was trying to tell it wasn't even like history it wouldn't i don't think it would survive the twitter age that movie Mm -mm. yeah i just i posted a long long comment that i copied from the guardian uk um just a half an hour before we came on to record the podcast that i found about you know 10 or 10 or eight or ten points of historical inaccuracies that were just ridiculous just almost yeah. laughable you but know we for were... instance like the like the like the princess that he's supposed to impregnate in real life she was nine years old right you know so that um, wouldn't have happened and we were talking about the homophobia thing um craig and i we were, we were remembering how you know how that evolved over time and that was right around the time so we did tom hanks just won for philadelphia so people Mm -hmm. were it was just starting to people were gay rights really were just firing up they weren't completely as powerful i don't think as they are now but it was starting you know Mm -hmm. um so you would think that there would have been more outcry but i really think that prior to crash and broke back 
the academy was kind of immune to it. Like, I think that they just, oh, well, who cares what they think, you know? They're above it. Oh, you know, not only that, I'll go even further than that. I will say that there were people in the academy, just like there were people all across America, who saw those scenes and got off on it and thought, yeah, throw the faggot out the window. Right. I'm sure that there were people in the academy who thought that. I'm sure. And that's why I'm saying, like, I don't think that they would have, even if people had called it homophobic, that I don't think they would have cared. Right, exactly. They not only I didn't mean. care, they probably were rooting for it. That's what right. I'm thinking. But Some, nowadays, not everybody, but a lot of people were probably thinking, gung-ho, you know, let's go for it. Let's, they could like, never get away with it now. No way. Mm-hmm. It would yeah. never be. It would just be, have been. Um, you know, I can't say that a movie directed by a popular actor uh, wouldn't win because one just did win. Now, Argo is a lot more entertaining. God, you could, you can, anybody can watch Argo, you know, not everybody can watch Braveheart. Braveheart really breaks those rules about what a best picture is supposed to be. Like I could not sit my daughter down in front of that. I could sit her down in front of Argo very easily Mm. or the artist or the King's speech or any of the movies that have won, but not Braveheart. It's too dense and weird and long. And I really believe that the only reason it won was because of Mel Gibson and okay, fine, the screeners. (laughs) But mm-hmm. more about the halo effect and the popular actor. And like you're saying, Ryan, the Oscar story behind it. You know, how hard it was to get made, how he stood up to the studios. Mm-hmm. They love that. They love an Oscar story, the voters. You know, it gives them something to root for. When Ben Affleck was snubbed, that was the perfect Oscar story. It really fits so nicely into the whole narrative. But we should move on to the next movie, right? Well, one last thing. I will, we'll say one last thing. We 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 may mentioned this before, but I just wanted to make another make the point more strongly again. The, the largest branch of the academy of the Actors Academy, and the actors really love it to see an actor take that next step up. Right. The actors really, and so the, all the actors were thinking, if Mel Gibson can be a director, maybe I can be a director. Oh, for you sure. Know? And so even though, uh, um, actually, you know, Mel Gibson was also, uh, Ron Howard was also an actor, but on a totally different level because he was coming from TV and he was a child actor. And right. so he didn't have the same amount of prestige and, and the were, same charisma like you guys were talking about. They were about. prejudiced against TV directors for a long time, like yeah. Penny Marshall mm-hmm. and Rob Reiner and um, Ron Howard. You know, that, mm-hmm. that stigma took a, little, a while. Nowadays, of course, Tom Hooper wins for King's Speech after he directed something for TV. Things are just a lot different now um, than they used to be. Mm-hmm. I wasn't even going to say anything about Braveheart. I was just going to sit back and listen to you guys because I was—I no, knew I was going to get like almost angry about it because it pisses me off so bad that it won over such really other fine, fine films. I love Sense and Sensibility so much. It's one of my favorite films, not only of the 90s, but of all time. It's such a good movie. And, you know, it really showed what Ang Lee could do. This is the first movie that he's making for Hollywood, right? Because we just mm-hmm. came out of a year where, was it Eat, Drink, Man, Woman? Or what was the last movie that... Eat, Drink, yeah. Man, Woman was the last, and before yeah. that was Wedding Banquet, yeah. Yeah, so this is his first foray into American film. And boy, does he do a great job uh, interpreting Jane Austen. And he's helped along by an absolutely amazing cast. How they didn't win the SAG Ensemble is just... You know, a mystery. I'm sorry, but I respect Apollo 13. I think it's way better than Braveheart. Um, I, but give me a break. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. Those actors up against uh, Kate Winslet and Emma Thompson and Hugh Grant in Sense and Sensibility, you know, is just mind boggling because that is, that is a masterclass in acting, that movie. Will you not 
shake hands with me. How do you do, Miss Marianne? Louis, what is the matter? Why have you not come to see me? Were you not in London? Have you not received my letters? Yes, I had the pleasure of receiving an information you were so good as to send me. For heaven's sake, Willoughby. Tell me what is wrong. Thank you, I'm most obliged. If you will excuse me, I must rejoin my party. have long been engaged elsewhere, and it is with great regret that I return your letters and the lock of hair which you so obligingly bestowed upon me. I am, etc., John Willoughby. Oh, Marianne. Dearest. It is best to know what his intentions are at once. Think of what you would have felt if your engagement had carried on for months and months before he chose to put an end to it. We're not engaged. But you wrote to him. I thought then he must have left you with some kind of understanding. No. He's not so unworthy as you think him. Not so unworthy. Did he tell you that he loved you? Yes. No. Never absolutely. It was every day implied, but never declared. Sometimes I thought it had been, but it never was. He's broken no vow. He has. He's broken faith with all of us. He made us all believe he loved you. He did. He did. He loved me as I loved him. <laughs> Apparently, they never were engaged. Miss Gray has £50,000. Marianne is virtually penniless. She cannot have expected him to go through with it. But I feel for Marianne. She will lose her bloom and end a spinster like Eleanor. It's the best of all the five nominees in terms of an acting ensemble. I think they were weirded out by Ang Lee. They didn't quite know what to make of him yet because he's, I mean, in, in the next few years, up and up to the, gosh, up to last year, you're going to watch the trajectory of Ang Lee's career in Hollywood. And you're going to mm -hmm. see how he gets shafted, you know, unfairly up to Brokeback Mountain, which didn't win Best Picture. But, you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was, was great and could have won Best Picture, but Gladiator won. And, and now we're looking at Sense and Sensibility, which lost to Braveheart, which is a joke, but Ang Lee the, wasn't directly The year that uh, the Gladiator won BP, Soderbergh won Best Director. 
Right. Yeah. And, right and so it, it's like it got shafted in two different directions from, you know, top right. to bottom. He got shafted that year. So what was happening in 1995 was also a kind of an interesting thing in the best director branch. The reason that Ang Lee and um, Ron Howard were shafted, I think, is because people probably assumed that they were getting in anyway and they would put their votes to something else. Taking their place were Tim Robbins for Dead Man Walking, another actor, director, and Mike Figgis for Leaving Las Vegas. These are two really, really depressing, hard-hitting movies um, that, you know, were, were Leaving Las Vegas was probably the best-reviewed film of that year. Uh, and then compare them to the best picture race, and you're you're really looking at a total difference in tone. You know, you have Babe and Apollo 13 and Braveheart and Il Postino and Sense and Sensibility. They're all about love and heroism, and 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 look at the best director branch or category, and it's it's pretty hardcore with those two editions. And you also have Mel Gibson and Babe and. Um, Chris Noonan for Babe and, and Michael Radford for Il Postino, but you have Tib Robbins, Dead Man Walking, and Mike Figgis for Leaving Las Vegas. And, and the problem with 1995 is there are so many great movies to talk about. I mean, you could spend an hour on each one of these. And, and Leaving Las Vegas, Dead Man Walking, The Usual Suspects, To Die For, which isn't even on here. Um, mm. But we'll keep it for now to the best picture race. So we're talking about Sense and Sensibility, which is the first big Jane Austen adaptation where it's it's a, it's pretty much an all female cast. Um, it's all about you know the, the the passionate sister Kate Winslet and the more sensible older daughter who's on her way to being a spinster, which is Emma Thompson, and she adapted the uh, the screenplay, and I believe she won an Oscar for that. She did, she did. Um, yeah. Lindsay Duran produced the movie, and she had first had the idea that she wanted to produce the movie back in 1980 before she was even anyone in Hollywood. Her father was a producer, a veteran producer in Hollywood, and so when she graduated from Barnard and UCLA, she came to Hollywood, and I guess sort of under because of her father's um, connections, she got a job at a studio, and she became head of production at whichever studio produced um, Sense and Sensibility. And so finally her 10-year dream of finally being able to have the clout to get Sense and Sensibility made was coming true, and she started to look around for a writer. And she had worked with um, Emma Thompson on Dead Again, a movie that she shepherded, uh, Lindsay Duran, the the producer. And so she um, knew that that, uh, um, Emma Thompson was a Cambridge graduate, was really intelligent. She knew that she had written some of her own television work and everything so she approached her with the idea and so and for the next five years emma thompson wrote like a dozen drafts of the screenplay and she would uh, confer with Lindsay duran about what needed to be changed and how they could adjust it for budgetary regions reasons and whatever and so she crafted it while in the process of you know meanwhile making seven or six or seven other movies and winning an oscar already for best supporting actress for what for howard's end was it a lead actress yeah. she won. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, right, yeah. Um, she was writing the screenplay in her spare time for five years, rewriting wow. and rewriting it. And so in the same year that Sensibility, same month that Sense and Sensibility came out, a book came out of the screenplay. Yeah. Also with the diary, Emma Thompson's diary, which was yeah. a 70-page diary of the making of the movie, and an introduction, a 10-page introduction by Lindsay Duran, which came out simultaneously with the movie, which was a huge great 
idea to do as far as publicity and PR. And mm. I, I'm sure the Academy members knew about that. Oh, I'm sure they got diary? it as a gift. I had it, actually. I don't know where. I, I must have left it somewhere at some point, but I had definitely had that book. And I'm sure that was mm. one of the swag pieces that they sent out. Mm-hmm. Um, and wouldn't it have been great because it's like lavishly illustrated. It's got like 50 full-page color plates from the movie and everything. And it really, the diary is, is, is hilarious. It's so fun. She I would was, recommend well, to anyone who can track that, down this book. That year, when she came out, you know, that was really everybody's chance to get to know how funny and brilliant Emma Thompson was. I, I watched it happen, and she was really more of the campaigner for that film than, than Ang Lee, who's so quiet and reserved and, you know, as we know, mm. wonderful man that he is. And But she was out front. And she even gave her Golden Globe speech uh, as a letter from Jane Austen. Thank you enough, Hollywood Foreign Press, for honouring me in this capacity. Um, I don't wish to burden you with my debts, uh, which are heavy and numerous, but um, I think that everybody involved in the making of this film knows that we owe all our pride and all our joy to the genius of Jane Austen. And um, it occurred to me to wonder how she would react to an evening like this. (laughs) This is what I came up with. 4 a.m., having just returned from an evening at the Golden Spheres, which, despite the inconveniences of heat, noise, and overcrowding, was not without its pleasures. Thankfully, there were no dogs and no children. The gowns were middling. There was a good deal of shouting and behaviour verging on the profligate. However, people were very free with their compliments, and I made several new acquaintances. Miss Lindsay Duran of Mirage, wherever that might be, who is largely responsible for my presence here, an enchanting companion about whom too much good cannot be said. Mr. Ang Lee, of foreign extraction, who most unexpectedly appeared to understand me better than I understand myself. Mr. James Seamus, a most copiously erudite person. And Miss Kate Winslet, beautiful in both countenance and spirit. Mr. Pat Doyle, a composer and a Scot who displayed the kind of wild behaviour one has learned to expect from that race. (laughs) Mr. Mark Kenton, an energetic person with a ready smile who, as I understand it, owes me a great deal of money. (laughs) True. Miss Lisa Henson of Columbia, a lovely girl, and Mr. Gareth Wigan, a lovely boy. I attempted to converse with Mr. Sidney Pollock, but his charms and wisdom are so generally pleasing that it proved impossible to get within ten feet of him. The room was full of interesting activity until 11pm when it emptied rather suddenly. The lateness of the hour is due therefore not to the dance, but to the waiting in a long line for a horseless carriage of unconscionable size. The modern world has clearly done nothing for transport. P.S. managed to avoid the Hoyden, Emily Tompkinson, who has purloined my creation and added things of her own. Nefarious creature. Thank you. But she was so funny, and everybody fell madly in love with her that year, I remember. Uh, and she just really, really made Jane Austen accessible. And because of all that rewriting and rewriting she did with that adaptation, it's tight as a drum. You know, mm-hmm. it is one of the Absolutely. best written films. It's, she worked really closely with, with uh 
Ang Lee um, in casting the movie, too, because he was unfamiliar with uh, British actors, and so she was beside him all the time. She and Lindsay Duran were beside him in London as he was auditioning for the roles. She says that he cast the roles a lot of, instead of, because he said to her, he says, after seeing like a hundred people and seeing how excellent they all were, he says, can everyone in England act? Is everyone in England an actor? Because they were just all so good. All the, all of the people coming for auditions. And, but she said that he chose, he cast the movie by uh, appearance, by the way that they looked more more than their talent because they were all talented. They could right, all just right. nail the role. Well, there was Kate, no problem that was with, a really with the really big introduction to Kate Winslet. I mean, we just had Zara in Heavenly Creatures, and now we're seeing her in um, in in this. And but this was really where she she just kind of, her career kind of exploded before Titanic, which of course it, it really did mm-hmm. explode. But yeah. um, but he, I think that that on the set they had they had meditation or yoga or something every day. They would do. Tai Chi. Tai Chi or something. Yeah, I yeah. guess it was mm-hmm. Tai it Chi. It was, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So. so you remember, I mean, that was in the diary. I really re- highly recommend anyone who loves this movie, who doesn't know about this book already, find it. Because there are like hundreds of copies out there, thousands of copies that you can get for like a really low deal price for you know, a used copy. And, find this book and read it. You'll love it. And if you haven't seen it, see it. Because it don't buy the hype. Like I think one of the reasons it didn't do that well in the Oscar race is because they're, they're macho men in the Oscars. They're macho. Mm-hmm. And they looked at it and they thought, oh, that's just that's a dumb woman's movie. What do I want to see that for? But really, if you want to see a great story, great characters, and an ending that'll just make you die, it'll just you'll plot. Mm. <laughs> this is the best ending ever. <laughs> uh, go see that. And it's beautiful to look at. Incredibly beautiful costumes, and they all filmed on location in these days. Um, English mansions. And estates and everything. It's just fantastic looking. Just impeccable movie, top to bottom. Oh, God, yes. And the costumes. So, what about um, Il Postino? Should we talk about that? Does anybody have anything to say about it? I just remember it being the introduction to. uh, I remember two things about it. I had the soundtrack, and I'll never get the sound of um, Julia Roberts reading Pablo Neruda (laughs) out of my head. And now you're mine. Rest with your dream in my dream. Love and pain and work should all sleep now. The night turns on its invisible wheels, and you are pure beside me as a sleeping amber. No one else, love, will sleep in my dreams. You will go. We will go together. Over the waters of time. No one else will travel through the shadows with me. Only you. Evergreen. Ever sun. Ever moon. Your hands have already opened their delicate fists and let their soft drifting signs drop away. Your eyes close like two gray wings. And I move. After following the folding water you carry that carries me away. The night, the world, the wind spin out their destiny. Without you, I am your dream. Only that. And that is all. That's what I remember about it was that it was it was a celebration of Pablo Neruda and the death of that actor who uh, 
um, oh, it didn't, wasn't he, I guess he wasn't nominated for supporting actor. Uh, oh no, Massimo Tracy uh, died. Yeah, he died, but he was nominated for, for best actor. Uh, anyway, that's a beautiful really? movie too. It's really romantic and, and sweet. I have to see it. Oh dear. Uh, the reason I'm being so quiet for is because I have nothing. Oh, it's okay. Well, we can move on to one that we yeah. we've all seen. So the other big popular movie that year was Babe, and if you ask a lot of people about 1995, they'll all say that they thought Babe should have won. Uh, and Babe is just again, I mean, wow, you know what a great movie about a you know pig and you know a funny cute pig on a farm and <laughs> all the all the characters that the pig gets to know and how he he ends up being um the the farmer's show pig uh, herding the sheep i mean god what a great movie sorry i'm doing such a bad you know, this job is the kind of movie that it, it could have gone it could have gone so wrong this movie it could have been so silly or so 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 childish or so off key or so sentimental, but it had it had the right sort of ironic sort. Now, not even ironic, but sort of this strange. I wouldn't even know how to describe the tone of it. Maybe where was it? Is made in New Zealand, right? Moving on to Ron Howard's Apollo Thirteen. You know, the only thing that really um, bothered me about that movie was the the stuff with Kathleen Quinlan and the the wife. I know it sounds terrible, but. Um, I don't know. I just had a hard time with it. It sort of pulled me out of the story. And, and women's attitudes about themselves were different in, in the 60s. And so for that reason, I'm able to accept their, the way that they act and the way that they're portrayed. And I'm just happy to see that they, that they didn't make it all about the astronauts and that they even took time, as you said, to even include the wives at all and, and, and give her a, a, meaty enough, a meaty enough role so that she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah, and I think it um, that was an important part of the whole the whole NASA thing was was the, the fact that there were families that were left behind by these men who were off doing these romantic, exciting things, but their lives were in danger. And you know, it um, it, it humanizes it a little bit and, and sort of reminds it, it sort of ups the danger level as well. So I, mm-hmm. I think it, it's it's a little corny, but you know that's that's Ron Howard, and I and I yeah. I've been unkind to Ron Howard's career over the years. I especially uh, well, I won't get into that. That's for, for another time. But I think I think Apollo thirteen holds up really really well. I was surprised because you know I saw this originally at a time I was like in full on post college movie snobbery. I was anti Tom Hanks because he was Mr. Popularity, and the movie seemed kind of bland and and just kind of Americana crap. But it, it actually has held up really really well and it um it, it uh it has a lot to say that is relevant to today as we as we watch the 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 space industry crumbling around us mm-hmm. and and even though to, i know i felt the same way about tom hanks at the time i've i've really i've really changed my attitude about him over the years uh, i really have grown to respect him so much more but I was almost really getting tired of him at the time, too. But to balance out Tom Hanks, you've got Bill Paxton, and you've got Gary right. Sinise, and you've got Kevin uh-huh. Bacon, who is uh-huh. incredibly hot. He's great. You know? yeah. yeah, he's great. Mm-hmm. Kevin Bacon's great. All that, all that stuff with the astronauts is, it, yeah. I mean, it's... One thing that... Go ahead. I just don't think it ever had that rousing um, scene, that moment where everybody's just kind of, uh, you know... Can can rally around it to give it the kind of win that um, 
that it needed. And it's unfortunate because it did win all of those big guild awards. It seems like it's a no brainer that it turned around and won the, won the Oscar. Mm-hmm. You know? I, I didn't all- realize. And- oh, go ahead. Uh, it's just going to say, it's ultimately kind of a sad story because it's really the beginning of the end of the space program for us. It's, it's, um, they managed to turn, um, what would have been a complete disaster into a semi success, or at least it wasn't a complete failure because they got the people home alive. But there's just this air of people, even, even at the beginning of the film, people are, have lost interest because we've already been to the moon and it's right. like second, second hat now. And so mm. it's, it's, it, nobody cares. And there's just this sense of winding down. It doesn't mm. give you that uplifting, feel good yes, um, exactly. juice that a movie I, I, often needs that's right that's exactly right it's not about a winning mission it's mm-hmm. not about a win and, and people were saying the same thing about um you know any movie that sort of ends on a downer note you know i had forgotten about that craig because uh, it's been a while since i've seen it but i had forgotten that they make a really big point of that in the movie about how they didn't even televise it because people had yeah. already seen it and they weren't even tuning in so they would just go back to their regularly scheduled programming and not even cover the the moon landing until the only um, yeah you know and so that's sort of I, I like that they brought that out that they that they were that they had a sort of self awareness about the fact about what was happening to the space program that people it was it was boring to them already. Well, between Jack's back taxes and the Fred Hayes show, I'd say that was a pretty successful broadcast. Next to show up. Thank you very much, Houston. Uh, we got a couple of housekeeping procedures for you. We'd like you to roll right to zero six zero and null your rates. Roger that. Rolling right zero six zero. And then if you could uh, give your oxygen tanks a stir. Roger that. Houston, uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. We have a main bus B undervolt. We've got a lot of thruster What's activity here, Houston. Now? It just went offline. Oh, there's another master alarm, Houston. I'm checking the quad. Christ, there was no refresh valve. Maybe it's in quad We've C. got a computer restart. I'm going to reconfigure the RCS. We've got a big light. fire doesn't make any sense. We've got multiple caution and warning, Houston. Was something that should be just fascinating and exciting has was already just uh, been there, done that. Because we had been there. Yeah. It's sort of the darker flip side of the coin of the of the heroic story that we're normally told. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, which automatically, to me, makes it a lot more interesting than, 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 than lots of other movies of its kind. Yeah. I there... like it a lot. One thing I will say that I don't 
that I have a, this thing about Ron Howard movie in general is Clint Howard popping up in, in the background. Of the movie. Yeah, I mean, he's like, he's like Forrest Gump. He's like Forrest Gump. There he is behind Nixon and Frost. Oh, and there well, he is bless behind, his heart. He's, now he, he's, a, he's a firefighter in Backdraft, and there he is in Cocoon or whatever. He's like, he's, uh, he's fucking Zelig. But bless you know, he's his heart. Always there. And he's, he's instead of like uh, finding Nemo, he's like, oh, there's Nemo again. Or finding Elmo. What is it? Finding Elmo? There's Elmo Where's again. Waldo? It's like, Where's Waldo? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's nice that he, it's sort of like in Julia Roberts movies, there's always her sister always pops up, her blonde sister. Um, I can't remember her name, but she's in every Julia Roberts movie. And it's sort of like, this is how she gives her some money and a career, you know, because otherwise without it, she wouldn't have it. So it's not, I think it's I nice. I didn't and, know that. Yeah. I didn't, this is the first I've heard about that. About Julia Roberts' sister? Yeah, I didn't yeah, she's in every story. movie. I forget her name. But she's got blonde hair. Um, <clears throat> I can point her out to you in every single Julia Roberts. Every time I see her, oh, there she is. There's a sister. It's like uh, photobombing almost, isn't it? It's like it pops up in the background and yeah. it like takes me right out of the movie every time. It's probably it's written a, into like... her contract, you know, like, oh, my sister is going to be in this movie. <laughs> she's going to have at least a couple of lines, you know, so she can get a nice paycheck to support her family. But uh, let's move on quickly to, God, there's so much to talk about this year. It's going to be hard to fit everything in. But uh, since our readers specifically asked us to talk about the best actress category i guess we can talk about that this is um uh, an interesting you know other weird fallback of this modern era that we're living through right now in the mid 90s because there's only one actress from a best picture nominee again in the best picture race last the year before 1994 there weren't any and this year there's only one and that's emma thompson sense and sensibility which if she hadn't won for uh, Howard's End, she might have had a better chance at winning for this. Um, Meryl Streep's great in Bridges of Madison County. That is one of the most um, underrated films of Eastwood and Streep's career. It's only marred by those awful scenes with the children. <laughs> the terrible grown-up children. It's like, mm. if they weren't in that movie, it would be a perfect movie. But every time they come in, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Cause for some reason, Clint Eastwood cast the two worst actors in Hollywood to play them. And as they read their lines clumsily, it's like we have to go through their dumb marriages and their modern lives. We don't care. All we care about is... <laughs> Get to the damn bridges. <laughs> Can I just watch Meryl Streep lust after Clint Eastwood while she's laying in the bath? I mean, we see so many movies about young sexuality. You know, Hollywood never gets tired of that. Blue is the warmest color. Um, you know, Silver Linings Playbook, whatever. You know, give give people the chance to gawk at a young woman exploring her sexuality. They are there. But there are so few of them that, that really go after the, the moment in a woman's life where she really does go through a sexual awakening, and that's when she's older. It's a sad, cruel joke of nature, but that's the way it is. I was just telling my daughter today, I'm like... You know, men just get more and more attractive as you get older. And the, more, <laughs> the older you get, the less attractive you are to them. And that's sort of like nature's cruel joke. But but the way Meryl Streep's character is awakened by this hot dude, who you have to be my age to say, Clint Eastwood in, in that movie is hot, because <laughs> he is. He shows up, this, you know, photographer wearing Levi's. He's smoking. He's cool. He's artsy, you know. And she just falls hard. And and the scenes where she's thinking about him and fantasizing about him when he's not even around, how she plays it. She's just a genius, this woman. Um, and she has to go from being the repressed wife when her husband is there and trying to focus on her kids and then letting herself go when she's with um, Clint Eastwood and then finally having to rein it all back in when she has to say goodbye to him. 
and she, you know they're that great scene where they're they're in the two trucks and it's raining and and Clint Eastwood's car is waiting up front and the lights are blinking and she knows all she has to do is get out and you know she can have the love of her life but it means she has to leave her husband and her kids and how that would destroy their lives and she just couldn't do it and she's sitting there and she's like you know crying and the husband doesn't know what's happening and her hand is on the door and she's just about to do it and then oh she doesn't do it you know Mm. it's one of the greatest like romantic scenes in any movie i just love it i really do i can't say enough about meryl streep in that film and it makes it it would have been a little bit harder for me to swallow if it hadn't taken place in the past but the fact that it takes place in 1960s and it takes place in in iowa i think and like way in the boondocks of iowa in the 1960s you can really understand how women would not have no women in the, in the area would have been you know was probably sexually aware of themselves very much you know no you just and, got married and that was that and she, but she yeah. she was played an italian so she came from kind of a different culture right uh, europeans are a little bit different not, not in italy particularly but certainly in france but um you know the one woman who did have an affair was shunned by by society and, and, and meryl streep's character ends up befriending her Mm-hmm. You know, as hokey as that, when I, when we were all, you know, young people, Craig, when you were in a stroller and I was pushing you around in the, the daycare. <laughs> Craig always says that I, I talk about him like he's like 20 years younger than me. <laughs> but, yeah, for uh, the listeners, I was testing Sasha's balls yesterday because she talks about the, the old days as though I were five and uh, didn't, didn't live through it when, in fact, I'm only a couple years younger than she is. That's right. So you remember when Bridges of Madison County came out, the book, and how it was round only criticized and how people they, they thought about it like they think of Shifty Shades of Grey it was the same kind of thing I, I have to admit I avoided it like the plague for years because of that it, it just yeah. it just had Oprah chick flick stink all over it and, exactly. I, and I at that point in my life I was going to have none of it and then I finally watched it and was stunned at how fantastic it is it's so good and the thing is is it's one of the one of the one of the greatest examples of tra- taking a piece of trash of, of literature which is the book is insufferable and hard to read and stupid it's like Twilight. It's so bad. But the movie is great. And because because he cast Meryl Streep in the role, he was smart enough, Clint Eastwood, to put her in the role when it so easily could have been cast with some gorgeous, supple Italian hottie, you know, which is how mm. any other director would do it. But he cast a good actress. He picked the right person for it. For a split second, the thought crossed my mind that he really didn't want me. But it was easy to walk away. something from the glove box. Eight days ago, he'd done that, and his arm had brushed across my leg. 
A week ago, I'd been in Des Moines buying a new dress. It's a long way from home, Washington State. I'll bet it's that photographer they've been talking about over at the cafe. Boy, what's he waiting for? were inside of me. I was wrong, Robert. I was wrong to stay, but I can't go. Let me tell you again why I can't go. And that made all the difference. Can't you just see that movie with a different actress in that role, how, how bad it would have been? It wouldn't have been the same. She is the reason it's a good movie. And, and Clint Eastwood, too, the two of them. And unfortunately... Yeah. So, um, but the thing was, was that Susan Sarandon, as we've talked about, had her Oscar story building for a long time. And by the time 1995 came around and, and look at what she had to do to win an Oscar. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen Dead Man Walking, but she had to have her husband basically create a role for her where she wears no makeup and she really, really uh, puts it all on the line. You know, And she delivers. Mm-hmm. And she delivers, and she's acting against Sean Penn, who gives one of the best performances of his career. He's an amazing actor, and this is, you know, was one of the best of his for sure. I uh, readers are also talking about her acceptance speech at the Oscars. I don't remember it. It's one, I don't even think I saw the Oscars that year, so I'll have to find it on YouTube. But we want to either link to it when we post the podcast, or or remind people to look that up. We will look up Emma Thompson's. Um, Oscar acceptance speech and also Susan Sarandon's is supposed to be really the highlights of the evening, the highlight, highlights of Oscar night. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just remember, you know, people thinking that she couldn't lose that year because um, even though she didn't win the Globe, uh, somebody else won the Golden Globe other than her. Oh, Sharon Stone won for Casino, hmm. which was a typical Golden Globe move, you know, vote for the big star because at that time Sharon Stone was a huge star. But uh, Susan Sarandon, of course, inevitably won the Oscar. Well-deserved win for her. Um, Elizabeth Shue, that was sort of the one time where, you know, the gods of Oscar were shining upon her for that incredible performance in Leaving Las Vegas. She plays a prostitute up against uh, Nicolas Cage, who won for his performance. Um, 
They love Oscar love they love actresses who play hookers and men who play drunks. They just <laughs> Well, that's them. the thing about Elizabeth Shue is she's playing uh, it's what's dangerously dangerously close to the hooker with the heart of gold cliche and she she humanizes it and makes it more real and and believable and I think Figgis deserves a lot of credit too for for not candy coating the story at all and he's yeah. not afraid to go into the deep dark places of this this man's spiral down the toilet basically but um it's uh it's sad that somebody one of the commenters pointed out how we we it sort of seemed like Elizabeth Shue had arrived at that point and then and never really capitalized it uh-huh. capitalized on it in terms of you know mainstream ongoing success which is unfortunate she had a few you know she's worked consistently she's still working but that was the one moment, you know, where people saw her as a potentially serious actress who could do more. It's, it's hard to be an actress in Hollywood and to get the good roles. Everybody fights for them, you know, and they inevitably go to a Jennifer Lawrence, you know, beautiful up-and-comer who has all the buzz. But, uh, but yeah, she had her moment in the sun there with Leaving Las Vegas. And, and it's really hard to watch, but so worth seeing because of her and Nicolas Cage, you know. He's great in it. I'm a prickly pear. I'm a prickly pear. <laughs> you know, another, it's odd that you should mention that, that uh, so many actresses have been nominated and won Oscars for playing prostitutes. Probably next to prostitutes, the, the, the career choice for Oscar would be playing a nun, which is what Susan Sarandon was playing in Dead Men Walking. She was playing a nun. And there, how many how many actresses have won an Oscar playing a nun? Yeah. Quite a few. You know, half a dozen or so. Yeah, she's really uglied up. Like, she didn't she didn't make her sleaze it out like they usually do. She didn't. She's not, you know, wearing a push-up bra and high heels and sleeping with everything that moves, which is what usually takes to win an Oscar. She's mm. the opposite. You know, she's no makeup. She's dowdy clothes. You know, breasts? What breasts? She's not, mm. you know, famous for her sexuality here at all. It's just pure character and you know like so many of this year's movies they they connected to the real life counterparts uh she connected to the woman uh the real life nun and and that nun was out doing publicity and they talked about their friendship and you know it was very you know there's a lot of integrity to their project of course it being tim robbins and and susan sarandon so you know she couldn't lose she could not lose for that I killed him. Oh, man. Yes, ma'am. Do you take responsibility for both of their deaths? Yes, ma'am. The lights dimmed on the that night. I kneeled down by my bunk. I paid for them kids. I never done that before. Oh, man. There are spaces of sorrow only God can touch. You did a terrible thing, man. A terrible thing. But you have a dignity now. Nobody could take that from you. You are a son of God, Matthew Nobody ever called me no son of God before. <laughs> Call me a son of you know what a lot of times. Never know a son of God. 
I just hope my death can give your parents some relief. I really do. Well, maybe it's the best thing you can give to the persons in the Delacroix. It's a wish for their peace. Because I never had no, no real love myself. I never loved a woman or anybody else. Myself, not good. But figures, I'd have to die to find love. Thank you for loving me. It would have been a How great for Tim Robbins. You know, the, his career tra trajectory was pretty amazing, too, from, from Bull Durham to um, ha having a little trouble finding work after Bull Durham uh, and, until Robert Altman picked him out of oblivion and put him in The Player. And then just two years after The Player, here he is directing a movie that wins his wife Best Actress Oscar. Yeah. There was a time when he was very ambitious, you know. He isn't anymore. But for a while there, he was. He was really trying to conquer Hollywood. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what's happened to him. He's just kind of gone into politics now, I guess. But um, she was really his muse, Susan Sarandon. She was his muse all the way through. She's so... God, I, I just have to say about her that I saw her for the Lovely Bones press um, Q&A, and she, she came mm -hmm. out, and she was... God, what, 65? And she was wearing thigh-high boots mm -hmm. and no plastic surgery. And you've not seen a sex... And I think I said this. Like, she's sitting next to these young, beautiful women, and you can't look at anybody but Susan Sarandon. She has so much charisma and so much command of the room. I could see why she would have kind of blown through his life. And it sort of feels like now that their marriage is over... He sort of lost his motivation and lost his muse. I could be totally wrong about that, but mm. that's sort of what it seems like. I guess his last really major movie was Mystic River, which is a decade ago. You know, it's ten years ago when he made Mystic River. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but yeah, she's like fearless. Susan Saranda. Susan Sarandon comes off as like absolutely um, unafraid, fearless about everything, oh in the God. same way that, that Emma Thompson is in a, in a more um, uh, playful way. But they were both just like forces of nature that yeah. year. Yeah, and that's a good segue into what I, I find is a an incredibly strong year for actresses. Now, I'm not saying that the movies did well, but what you saw this year was, was a heavy investment in, um, uh, you know, Role movies built around female characters. For instance, this was the year that they had. Uh, I'll just read you a few of them that came out that mm. year. And and keep in mind that these movies, I will say that they're all really good, and mm. a lot of them are good. Um, but they were kind of ignored. So we have Before Sunrise, which was the first of the Before series. Julie Delpy, um, you know, breaking into the scene and, and a wonderful character. Beyond Rangoon, which. Um, is one of my favorite movies that nobody ever talks about with an incredible performance by Patricia Arquette, who plays a woman whose um, family's been murdered and she goes to, it's Indonesia, right? Um, where is it that um, Aung San... Uh, Burma, Burma. Burma. She goes to Burma. Mm, yeah. And <clears throat> in her mourning, she kind of discovers uh, you know, a reason to live, and that's to help the people um, in this horrible, violent revolution that's happening. Um, you had Copycat with um, Sigourney, Sigourney Weaver, Weaver. And, and Holly Hunter. Del and we'll get to Dolores Claiborne. I'm going to save that for last because I really want a lot of our readers are interested in that and it happens to be one of my favorite movies. And then you had Sabrina, um, which was another movie about a female, which starred Julia Ormond. 
um, and you had Species, which is a, kind of a B movie, but it's fantastic. Uh, uh, you know about an alien who's a female who has to mate and is about to like you know take over the world. Showgirls, you know, which was a um, campy, you know, semi-awful movie, uh, but kind of great in a way too. You know, with with a lot of women in it. Uh, while you were sleeping, Sandra Bullock. She had uh, while you were sleeping and the net. They were both huge hits. And to die for, which had that absolutely to date Nicole Kidman's best performance. Let's talk about Incredible to die movie. for, and then let's talk yeah, I, about I love that movie so much. And they, maybe we wanted to touch briefly on Casino too. We don't want to forget. Casino. I was going to say I hope we don't let Sharon Stone get away with just being dismissed as being a, a big star in a big movie because she. Uh, she was great in that movie. Several of the commenters pointed that out in, in the in the preview, and she is fantastic. And it's important to remember that she's going toe to toe with De Niro and Pesci, and she holds her own in every scene that she's in. And I think the movie is as good as it is because she's given so much to do, and she makes so much of it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know she. Uh... Uh, she auditioned for the role again, uh, opposite De Niro in Raging Bull. She auditioned for who played Kathy that role? Moriarty. Kathy Moriarty. Right. Yeah. And uh, so she'd been after Scorsese for a long time. She she kind of almost sensed that he was her ticket. She may have damaged her reputation just a little bit with Basic Instinct, just on the basis of that one shot, you know. Yeah. But um, that may have been a misstep. And I don't it may think have she been ever, the reason that people sort of uh, disregard her a little she bit. She never recovered, just like um, Elizabeth uh, um, Showgirls, Elizabeth, Elizabeth mm, Berkeley. Berkeley never recovered. And I think she's a really good actress, And she, but she never recovered from Showgirls. You don't recover from that kind of a role. And well, you know, shame on Hollywood for dismissing somebody because they show their beaver on screen. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. Because she's, she's, I said it when we talked about the year, but she was great in Basic Instinct. I know you can dismiss the movie mm-hmm. as being trash, and you can even call it misogynist or homophobic or whatever you want, but she's great in it. No, yeah. I, I, I agree. It's a, really, it's, a, it's a great movie. It's a really fun movie, and she's t- terrific in it. She's, and, and in Casino, she's one of the great gangster moles of all time. She's great in Casino. I don't. I'm not. I don't agree about uh, Basic Instinct. She's always bothered me in that. I, I think she's incredibly confident and brave and sexy and able to do what a guy does. But to me, her acting is bad. Some of the line readings are just just cringeworthy. That's just well, me. The, the lines are cringeworthy. It's the lines are cringeworthy. Like, like pulpy, pulpy, over the top kind of stuff. That's the way. Yeah, it's done. and the dumb scenes where she's with Michael Douglas and she has to tie him up before she. Well, stabs you don't like him. the movie. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no. But yeah, she's. I mean, yeah. I don't think. Yeah, my point is, I don't think you can blame her for that. I think you're you're saddling her with other issues with the movie that I'm not even saying are not valid. But I don't think that that, it, that you can put it at her door. Is all I'm. Yeah, saying. I mean, I guess that's Casino is probably the best she ever did, and then underneath that would be Basic Instinct. But it's not like every role she ever turned in was a great performance. You know what I mean? So I think that that hurt her more than even perhaps showing her beaver. Like, I think she never really got better than those two performances, maybe. Uh, uh, Dolores Claiborne, which is another movie that featured some great film roles, and, and we could talk about Jennifer Jason Leigh and how... Talk about someone who got sh- kind of shafted. I mean, that that was... She was an actress who really did transform herself physically and emotionally and psychologically for a lot of the roles she played, including the one in uh, Dolores Claiborne. And a lot of people thought she just went too far, perhaps, in some of her performances. Like, she does seem to be the one acting in a different movie than everybody else in Dolores Claiborne. 
But nonetheless, she's still so good in the part. But there's a great line in that movie, which I'll play on this podcast because it's it's my one chance to play like one of the best clips ever. When the woman says, you know, sometimes you have to be a bitch, Dolores, <laughs> a high riding bitch. Or she says something like sometimes being a bitch is all a woman has to hold on to. I found them in New York. I just had to have them. Oh, Hi, how are you? There's a buzzer going off in the kitchen. I don't know what it is, but you better check it. Dolores! I'm sorry, Mrs. Donovan. We're going as fast as we can. Oh, please. Everything's charming. I heard on the radio that Colin Farrain. Oh, don't worry. I'll have my eclipse. I'm sending you home, Dolores. You've done a wonderful job, and it's all under control. And I want you to go and share this remarkable experience with your husband. He will be back, won't he? I suppose so. I've got you two Eclipse viewers and two reflector boxes. I thought you and Joe might like them. I can't. Sometimes, Dolores... Sometimes you have to be a high-riding bitch to survive. Sometimes being a bitch is all a woman has to hang on to. Thank you, dear. Now... Go on home. Pam and Sheila can clean up. Remember, eclipse at five. So in Dolores Claiborne, totally ignored by the Academy, holds up as one of the best films of this era. And really, take my word for it, watch it, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It got really written off by the press and the critics. Nobody talked, nobody cared about it. Over the years, it's gained a following because people watch it. And the reason it's so good is fucking Kathy Bates. She is... The woman can do no wrong. But in this part, she's better than she is in Misery, which she won the Oscar for. And she's great in Misery. But in Dolores Claiborne, oh my God. She plays young Dolores and old Dolores, protecting her daughter from her child-molesting husband and dealing with this crazy old woman who wants to die. And the whole movie is just revolves around three women, pretty much, and that is so unheard of. You'd never see that now. And in fact, in 1995, you'd never see all these movies I just named um, with these strong females even getting made. And part of that is this year because a lot of these movies did not do well at the box office or at the Oscars. And so they were written off and they became in the pile of these kind of movies don't do well. So that's why we're not going to make them anymore. But history Mm -hmm. has proven them, a lot of them to be so great. Like Dolores Claiborne is one, and I'm happy to hear that they're actually making it into an opera. I was always hoping they would turn it into a stage show, but I heard that they were making it into an opera, and it it is really something to see, especially for Kathy Bates, who was robbed of a Best Actress nomination for that. Totally robbed. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but you really should watch it. I have seen it a long time ago. I haven't seen it recently enough to be able to talk about it without sounding like a dumbass, so I'm going to just keep quiet about it. But I love, love, love Kathy Bates, and I'm glad that you also brought up Jennifer Jason Leigh, uh, an actress. So I think it's 
has put herself out there repeatedly, and I think she's she's been dismissed over the years because she so often and so frequently, especially earlier in her career, took her clothes off, and I think it's easier for people to write her off because of that. been drinking no shit i wish you wouldn't look at me look at me you see how i am right now honey what good is that gonna do because in 10 minutes i'm gonna be fine just give me 10 minutes it was a bad patch you had a bad patch and now you're feeling it all over again. Bad patch. I had a fucking nervous breakdown, mother. Don't say words like that. It was a hard time. You got through it. What am I doing? You just needed a rest, that's all. Right. You snapped out of it just fine. Or you can't have one of those things and get a scholarship to Vassar College. It was just a bad patch. Must have been out of my mind to come back here. But she's just done great work for years, all the way back as far as um, uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, you mean... That's when you mean she took her clothes off was for that, you mean? For the first time, yeah, but she did it several times after that, and I think it was easy. I think people didn't take her seriously because of that in a lot of ways. She she was never afraid to do that. I was so shocked when I saw that because I just saw the movie recently. I somehow missed it all uh, growing up, and when I I mentioned, I think I wrote you an email about that, Sasha, and I said I can't believe that she got like almost like full frontal naked in that movie, and you you explained to me, you, you helped me see that she was uh, in charge though she was absolutely in charge in that scene it wasn't yeah. as if she was an object she was she wasn't um, the sex object in that movie she was uh, almost um, the inst- she was the instigator and, and the uh, she wasn't she was definitely in charge yeah and that was what the 80s were like that movie was mm-hmm. true to sexuality in the 80s nowadays we see um, uh, we see a kind of an idealized version of what we would like it to be like. But the truth is, is it was, um, it was very much like that. You want to lose your fucking virginity and you went out and, and did it's, it. It's ultimately horrible, awkward, and disappointing. Uh, yeah. And you get <laughs> pregnant and you have to get an abortion, <laughs> which happened to all of us. Let's just say it. But, um, anyway, Jennifer Jason Lee also had done Georgia that year and was shafted for a nomination, even though she lost like, what was it? 50, 40 pounds or something for that. And, and, and emerged as this withering thing, this like weird kind of freak. And that was also in 1995. She did both of those movies and she was ignored for both of them. Um, weirdly. Yeah. She's only been, it looks like she's only been nominated. Uh, no, she's never, I don't think she's ever been nominated for anything. She was ignored for Hudsucker Proxy to the Coen Brothers film, where she does mm-hmm. a perfect Rosalind Russell character. She's fantastic oh, yeah. in that. Totally and she was great ignored. in Shortcuts, too. Yeah. So what's with that? Why would they not nominate her for anything? I don't get it either. Yeah, and it's just sometimes it's just the luck of the draw. You're dealt the cards in a certain year, and there just happen to be, as far as awards go, there are just five actresses who, who, who uh, strike a chord 
more strongly than you do. And it's just, if, if, it, if things had just fallen out a little bit differently, if those movies had been made in, in different years, she may have um, hit, uh, splashed out bigger. Yeah, and Mayor Winningham was nominated for supporting in Georgia. So that tells me that it's possible that Jennifer Jason Leigh was close, you know, mm-hmm. getting a nomination for that. But interesting, isn't that, it? It is. Another thing you were saying a minute ago about the fact that, that they were beginning to see that, that um, movies featuring um, revolving around women were not making as much money as the movies about men, and so they were beginning to stop making those movies. Mm. Another interesting thing about 1995 that, we, uh, that I would like to bring up in, in respect to Seven, the one outstanding thing about Seven is I believe it's the only movie in 1995 that features a black actor. Oh my there's, God! Of all of all the movies in 1995, I think there's only one black actor, and it's it's Morgan Freeman. And, and you got to be kidding me! Well, I mean, you know, there were some really small roles, but I mean, try to think of all the movies, all the movies that we named. You know, are there any um, where are the black stars in any of these movies? There are several in Heat, but they're not the main focus. Mm, right? Yeah, that's true. And, and Heat like, is Heat is a wonderful movie too. We should talk. People really want us to. Talk I hope about we can it. talk about that a little bit. Yeah, let's definitely talk about Heat. Um, that was a big deal movie at the time. Was it just totally shut out of the Oscars? Here was there no, not even Al Pacino or anybody nominated. That's amazing. I hope that's not true. Let me check real quick. Um, what was the deal yeah, with Michael Mann's not getting respect either? Is it because he was came from television? Because he, he was considered still a Miami Vice guy that he that it took so long for him to get respect? Yeah, no Oscar and it's a genre picture. It's Val a genre Kilmer picture. got a nomination for most desirable male at the MTV Movie Awards. Wow, <laughs> way to go, Val! So there's so many movies that were just completely ignored that have been rediscovered in the years since, and Heat has to be right at the top of that list. And it holds up really, really, really well. I, I just watched it, it. It was on HBO the other night, and I, I knew it was 1995, and I was planning on watching it for this podcast. But I, it was, it came on late, and I was just going to watch like 15 minutes of it and then go to bed. And I ended up watching the entire three hours of it, and was just, even though I'd seen it a bunch of times before, it just totally sucked me in. And um, one of the commenters pointed out, and this kind of relates to what we were talking to about female pictures. That's one of the knocks against it is that there's not really any strong female characters in it but i that doesn't really bother me because it's it, that's just the terms on which the movie exists it's a movie about men and that's fine it's it's unfortunate because so many movies are but i don't think you can really criticize any individual movie for being that way and that, that just that this is just the story he wanted to tell but right. aren't in the there, same there way are that movies you can't really there are women in there um, though there are supporting roles there's um... there are but they're there they are definitely supporting they they they, they sort of are there for the men to play off of part of right. the structure of and the that's male the norm now is, is the fact you know? that they have troubled relationships with their women they have a right. troubled relationship with the women in their life and so the women are there to exist as a problem in the men's life that they that that, that not that the women are a problem but the men have a problem with them but this the is the norm problem because yeah this is the norm nowadays that's how movies get are made now right. back yeah. then it was seen as probably maybe seen as as an anomaly as something that because look at all these great movies with great female roles but um but you're right that uh, that's one, probably one of the reasons that, that people do criticize that movie, although I think that's crazy. I'm sorry. But, yeah, well, Brian's right. It's, it's, it's a part of the story. It's, it's the, the, the fact that the, that the women aren't key figures is, 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 it tells you a lot about the men whose story is being told. 
It tells you that those men cannot connect with the, with the, they cannot uh, right. form a, a normal relationship with a woman. Right, and that's and not, they make that's a big point of that for for Michael and, Mann's career. He's he's right. he's focused. That's one of his huge themes. You know, it's through a lot of his not films. accidental, not accidental in Heat at all because they make a big point in Heat the fact that Al Pacino's wife he's living in the house that she inherited in her divorce proceedings from her previous husband. So he's living in a house that's not even his. It's his wife's house that 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 she got from her rich husband, and he's totally out of place in it because it's that ultra modern, you know, high tech house that he cannot stand. Even he he looks out of place there, and she's always dressed in black like she's at a funeral or something, mm-hmm. and. Uh, um, so he's totally detached from his home life altogether. So there's no accident that it's structured that way. It's, it's in order to to uh, to make Al Pacino's character look more isolated. Right. Yeah. So it's Al Pacino and Robert De Niro together again. That that's what I remember being the big deal of that year was that those two mm-hmm. actors were in the same movie. That's just but, such... but rarely in the same scene. There was only one one two key scenes that they were actually in together, and one of them was at the very end where there's not a lot of dialogue. You know, and different. you know what? An interesting thing about the, those scenes that they're in together, they're actually not rarely in the same shot together. They right. will show both of them talking to each other, but Michael Mann never puts them in the same frame together. They're always, they're, you know, they're, they're reverse angle shots, you know, talking to each other, that one face and then the other face back and forth, back and forth. But they never are seen together in the same shot. So even though that's, that was the big selling point of the movie, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro together, Michael Mann teases that, but he doesn't give it to you. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah, and, and you know, you're talking about Michael Mann. It's really weird how in my lifetime I've watched him become, you know, one of the hottest directors in town, really, uh, you know, a, a formidable voice, one of the big, big guys, you know, and, and then not, and then suddenly not. You know, now he's not thought of that way. His movies get inside my head to the same degree that, almost to the same degree that Kubrick movies do, or even David Fincher, because he's so... Uh, he's almost uh, obsessively perfectionist about his compositions yeah. and his camera moves and everything. Mm. There's a there's a certain psychological thing that that gets in inside my skull that that makes those movies stick with me. Mm. They're and very he, they're very detail oriented. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's what yeah you know that's what I was thinking about when I saw Captain Phillips today. How much um, uh, Paul Greengrass, in a way, reminds me of Michael Mann because of the the the, the density of detail in in the frame. Oh God, that's really a vigorously directed film. That one, mm-hmm. Captain mm-hmm. Phillips, it's incredible. You know, and Heat is Heat is an epic. It's an opera. I wish that it had gotten some Oscar attention because you know that would have given it a, a significant place in history, which it deserved to have. I think. Um, it didn't get it. It was a really crowded year, as you can see. It's going to be like this this year we're living through right now because there's so many good movies. How do you fit them all in? You know, you mm-hmm. can't really fault the Academy. They picked five pretty damn good movies, you know, uh, for their best picture. And they left out a lot of really, really good ones. I mean, you had T- Terry Gilliam's um, 12 Monkeys, for instance, you mm-hmm. know, that year. That's incredible. You had Oliver Stone's Nixon, which I talked to Craig already about this, and I know it's not his favorite. But to me, it's absolutely my favorite Oliver Stone movie is Nixon, and much of that is. Um, we have to talk a little bit about it because I really want to play a clip. <laughs> Go for it. So, uh, I watched it again uh, two or three months ago on your recommendation. Because when I first saw it, I didn't care for it at all. But man, it is in- incredible. It's one. I agree. It's one of his very best movies. I'm so excited yeah. to hear now that he's uh, 
he's going to do the Martin Luther King bi- biography. Yeah, right? and he's yeah. so much. It's so much better than JFK. JFK is just sort of a sloppy mess, and it doesn't come to anything because that story is not a true story. It's a weird fabrication. It's a maybe possibly happened. It's not based in fact. Nixon is is a portrait of a man. Who, of course, yes, everything in Oliver Stone's oeuvre at that time related back to the Vietnam War. He was a mm-hmm. Vietnam vet. He really wanted to find a reason why we went to Vietnam. He wanted to indict Nixon for that. But he also paints a compassionate portrait of Nixon, I thought. And it's not just Anthony Hopkins' brilliant performance. It's um, it's also, you know, his his choice to not make him into a monster. He makes him into this sad, vain insecure, hypocritical man who really just wants, you know, the kind of attention that uh, JFK is was so hung up on memories of his mother, too, which I never knew that about yeah. Nixon. And, and it, it, it helps explain, even if it, I don't, it might be, you know, dime store psychology, but it's, it works for me. It really helps explain what made Nixon the way he totally. is. The fact, his, his, his upbringing. What religion was that? Um, really Quaker. conservative. She was a Quaker. Quaker, right, Quakers. yeah. And they were hardcore religious. And, uh, you know, all those wonderful flashbacks of, like, you know, go to the woodshed. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I know. It's almost woodshed. like Mommy Dearest kind of thing. I know. But the, then she's, like, she shames him, right? What is he masturbating or something? Like, there's some scene where she totally shames him for something. And um, and then and then you have great Joan Allen as his wife, you know, um, getting drunk and, and telling her you should burn them. You know, what's <laughs> the trigger <laughs> about the tapes? You should burn them. And she's so bitter because she's been married to this poor man who, you know, just basically doesn't have sex with her, you know? Mm-hmm. He was probably gay, Nixon, you know? Maybe, you know? <laughs> because most Republicans are. I know. But, I mean, if you're like a Watergate <laughs> nut, which I am, you know, you'll never tire of this subject, like Frost Nixon and this. And anytime yeah. they dive into Nixon to me, it's just like, and all the president's men. It's just candy, and that's what I love about Nixon. I have never really, I've never really warmed to any other Oliver Stone movie except this one. So, um, for what it's worth, and it's one of the few movies about a president where you choose to make a movie about a president who who's not um, turned into a saint, who's not who's not the hero of the movie. The, you, it's because very few presidents have actually ever been as downright, you know, evil to the core as Nixon was. And uh, so it, it, those movies about those types of politicians don't often get, get made. It may be uh, All the King's Men. What am I thinking of? With the Huey Long story? What was the name of that? Yeah, oh, yeah that's right, All the King's Men. Um, yeah. We should talk about To Die For before we run out of juice because we can't skip that movie. That's such a great – and speaking of, you have her with uh, Joaquin Phoenix. And here is a really early – is it his first performance in To Die For or – did he have something before that? But Joaquin Phoenix plays one of her teenage uh, lovers who mm-hmm. she convinces, who Nicole Kidman in the best performance she's ever given, um, convinced as Suzanne Stone, you know, wannabe uh, news reporter, you know, who, who is convincing her boss, you know, to, to, that she's more than just the weather girl. Oh, my God, is it a great movie. And she goes to, you know, meet with the news guy, and he, he basically tells her she has to give him a blowjob, and, and then she'll get ahead. And she ends up marrying um, Matt Damon, no, Matt Dillon, um, who's a total small-time Charlie, and she can't stand it, and she needs fame. And so she seduces these high school kids in these series of incredibly sexy scenes between her and these kids, Um 
she convinces them to murder her husband. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. It's just, it's a black comedy. It's funny. I mean, it's, you know, it's sad and weird and tragic, of course. But it's and Gus Van Zandt directed it. And so we're seeing a lot of directors come out, begin, begin to emerge, even like Ang Lee, although he would already, in many people's eyes, emerged already with, uh, with, uh, uh, the Wedding Banquet and Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. And I should mention, even though we, we did say that he didn't get nominated for an Oscar, the Golden Globes nominated him for Best Director and the BAFTAs nominated for him Best Director for Sense and Sensibility. So we don't want to say that no one saw what he was doing because there were people outside the Academy who saw what he was what he was capable of. But, I mean, we're seeing, so we're seeing Gus Van Zandt and we're seeing some other directors begin to emerge that, that are going to be big players in, in years to come. Mm, for sure. Yeah, and especially David Fincher with Seven, you know, he hadn't quite burst onto the scene yet. Did you just say David Fincher? Were you just I talking? didn't mention David Fincher. I just oh. said, mentioned Seven earlier when I was trying to make a snide remark about the fact that it was the only movie with a black actor in it all year long. But but I think that nobody really knew. Look, In retrospect, it seems like how could they have overlooked Seven, aside from the fact that it's a genre film. But I also think it's because nobody knew where he was coming from. You know, because he was so brand new, they didn't know who he was going to be capable of. He was he was just a music video director still at that exactly. point. Exactly right. Yeah, easy to write off. Johnny Depp was sort of lurking in the background too. The last couple of years, he'd been in Edward the previous year, and he was in Dead Man, the Jim Jarmusch western this year, um, which was underseen and underappreciated, but fantastic as well. I just wanted to give a mm-hmm. shout out to that. Mm-hmm. It's hard to, to single out, isn't it? Any mo- one movie of this year, there's so many great ones. That's the Clueless. frustrating thing mention for me Clu- about uh, Braveheart. I mean, we've already talked about Braveheart, but um, I think I would feel a lot better about Braveheart if it hadn't won in this year when there were so many legitimately great movies. I mean, it's uh, I, I don't dislike the movie as much as Ryan does. It's, I think it's fine. But when you elevate it to the best picture in a year when there's some really epically great stuff, it, it's kind of frustrating. Can we mention Clueless just briefly? Because I know a lot of our readers did. It's one of those movies that, that it's one of the great movies about teenagers ever. And and interestingly enough, Clueless was based on another Jane Austen book. It was based on Emma, right? And it's a modern update of of the the novel Emma. And also there was another Jane Austen movie that year too called Persuasion, which I haven't seen. So there were three Jane Austen movies that year. Right, right. I'm a little sick of Jane Austen, honestly. But <laughs> well, now, but that she was I'm still so tired cinematically. Of she was still pretty fresh at that point. Yeah, exactly. But I'm just sort of, just sort of tired of the retread of Jane Austen over and, and the right. Jane Eyre again. Not Jane Austen, but also Jane Eyre. That story it just keeps being retread and retread. And, but mm. Pride and Prejudice. How many times do we have to see that movie again? Um, yeah. But they're great. They're all really great, and they're wonderful, and she's incredible writing, and yay, Jane Austen. I love, I'm not trying to be totally mean about it. I'm just saying by now, I'm sort of Jane Austen now. Back then, that was sort of the beginning of the rediscovery, I think, of her in Hollywood. Right. Clueless is great. Clueless has kind of been obliterated by Heathers and uh, uh, Mean Girls in memory and retrospect. It, it, it's, it's sort of lost its place a little bit among those two much better films about you know teenagers. I don't think they're much better. I think I think Clueless Holt stands up really well to them. I think it has been sort of uh, 
sort of just sort of forgotten, but I think I've, I've watched it in the last couple of years, and it holds up surprisingly well. Yeah, like, see, the opposite to, for me. Like, I watched it, and I didn't think it held up that well. She was a little bit um, annoying to me, but... Um, maybe if I had... I, I, I don't think I gave a crap about it when it first came out, because I wasn't. it wasn't the kind of movie that I would have gone to see back then, But and I came to it later, probably, so maybe that's why my perception of it is a little different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's frivolous in a way that um, probably that Jane Austen character was frivolous, but somehow... When it's Jane Austen, it doesn't seem as frivolous as when it's like a valley girl who likes fancy right. cars and nice clothes. She's cute. She's funny. She's great. I, I shouldn't diss the movie so much, but I just felt like Mean Girls was just such a much better. And Heather's both are so rich and offer so much about women and young women. And, and that's a little bit on the light side. Cute, funny movie. Great movie. You know, just not to me very groundbreaking. Popular, mm-hmm. though. A lot of people really love it. And the actors in, in Heather's went on to do more things than Alicia Silverstone's career sort of stalled out after after um, Clueless, whereas Winona Ryder, Kristen Slater, and other they went on to have sort of inter- interesting careers after that. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, also, that Emma story has been retold. You know, didn't, didn't Gwyneth Paltrow do Emma? Mm-hmm. She did it. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? Um, but one thing, one great thing about uh, Clueless, though, is a, it's a woman director. It's Amy Heckerling. Right. So that's 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 important and to mention. And she's uh, what happened to Amy Heckerling, by the way. I, some, I get her confused with the woman who directed American Psycho. What's her name? I always uh, get those Mary two confused. Mary Heron. Mary Heron. Mary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a lot of you know. Sometimes I hate to do this, but a lot of my appreciation of film is colored by my daughter's reaction to things, you know, Mm -hmm. I try not to do it, but it inevitably, if I see a movie with her that she loves, like we just saw frozen and she loved it. So to me, it's automatically a great movie. It doesn't always happen like that, but it often happens. And when I sat her down to watch clueless, you know, I thought that she would really have liked it and, and identify with it, but she was sort of like, you know, well, you know, she seemed shallow. I know she's, she's supposed to seem shallow. It's sort of the point, but I think nowadays a kid in, who lives in Beverly Hills and in this fancy house is sort of, um, it doesn't resonate as much to someone like her. Right, although Clueless and Bling Ring sort of make a nice and inter- interesting double feature yeah, together. for right, sure. In a way. Yeah. Um, and it, but the thing about Clueless is that, kind of, that character has been done to death. It yeah. might have been new and fresh back then, but it's been done to death now. She's great yeah, in it, though. You've got to say, Alicia yeah. Silverstone mm-hmm. as that character is so funny, yeah. and there are a lot of quotable lines and fun mm, I, I really like it. I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm running it down or I'm jumping, uh, turning against it all of a sudden. The reason I brought it up is because some of the readers said they're really fond of it, and I am too. Yeah. Right, yeah. So I can always have fun watching that movie. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah, you guys. I'm. I get to be the grouch in this. In this, <laughs> this Devil in a boot in a blue dress. We didn't mention. Uh, oh, uh, was Carl that this Franklin. year? Okay. Well, speaking of black characters, there you go. Oh yeah, right. I forgot about it. There. A there whole black cast. Mm-hmm. You forgot about it, and so did Oscar. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was totally and completely overlooked. Um, I don't even think it got a... Co- did it get a costume nomination, maybe? Did it? I don't know. I can't type fast enough. Let me see here real quick. I seem to recall that it at least got that. <laughs> Sorry, I blanked out. I forgot what movie we're talking about. Devil, Devil in a Blue Dress. dress. Okay, Devil in the Blue Dress. It's got a blue dress right in the title. Surely it got a costume <laughs> nomination. Come on. Uh, the Blue Dress on. <laughs> <laughs> what else have we you know when i when we look at um like we've we've named like t- 
15 or 20 fantastic movies from 1995. And I think this year is going to be another one of those years where it's going to be easy to, to find 10 or 12 or 15 fantastic movies that are going to be really, really worthwhile that we would recommend to anyone. So I know that we sometimes we, 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 we criticize the current state of Hollywood, their, their obsession with making movies for teenage boys and superhero movies and action movies and this kind of thing. But as long as the industry is supporting... Uh, enough filmmakers to make 20 great movies a year, I think I'm okay with it. You know, if they if they need to make their billion dollars on Iron Man 3, so be it. If that gives them enough freedom uh, and extra money to play with to make to movies like, like uh, her, then that's fine with me. Mm. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in that almost every year is a pretty decent year for movies. I mean, it seems like around top ten list time, you always hear people say, oh, well, that was a terrible year for movies. And to me, that just bespeaks somebody who doesn't see enough movies. Because if you if you dig below the surface a little bit, there's lots of fabulous movies every year. And they might not always have the Oscar shot spotlight shined on them, right. or they might not always light up the box office. But there's great movies out there, and I think it's important for people to to dig around a little bit for them, even if you have to wait till they come on cable or whatever. They're, they're there. Yeah. But you got to love the I'm Oscar good. race because that keeps movies like her alive. You know, the, the mm-hmm. only reason it will exist at all is because it might make a splash in the awards race. I mean, there's no denying the direction Hollywood's heading into, and that it is going to be a fight. And os- the Oscar race holds up. Um, mm-hmm. a beacon for movies like that to still get made because the Oscars certainly aren't going to, you know, pick Iron Man 3 for best picture right. ever. So they need and, to find, you know, movies like this. And so hopefully they'll always get made. But it is mm-hmm. a, you know, we are living through a pretty scary time when a movie like Rush and um, Gravity had a hard time getting financed, you know. Right. They're, yeah, that is all... true. It's not as if they had an easy road getting made. Mm-hmm. And it, we'll say, too, that even though not all of these movies that we've talked about today, a lot of them were overlooked by the We've talked about that. We've talked about Heat and Seven, how they almost were completely ignored. Just the fact that there is the Oscar to shoot for gets those movies made. And so even if if for some strange reason that the Academy just doesn't go to see her or whatever happens to her, if for some reason it falters, it still has it they had the prestige um goal in mind to be made yeah exactly um but too bad we I didn't can't express have that a- well i didn't express that really well but you i think you understand what i mean yeah or you're pretending that you did no yeah. i totally understand okay. okay i'm just hoping that you know that uh that this year proves successful for all these movies i looked at russia's box office it's not making any money i thought it would make a whole shitload of money it's not. Gravity's doing really well, but it cost a hundred million to make, so it's only made twenty three on top of that. You know, I hope her makes money. It's unfortunate that a lot of the movies we're looking at in nineteen ninety five were it, their success was dependent on how much money they made, and a movie like Braveheart, you know, which reflects the taste of the American people at the time, and the Academy really did succeed because of its box office. You know, there's still so much attention at this time in 1995 paid to box office. Yeah, I, well, I did look, I did check when you said that about Braveheart. Braveheart um, made it, uh, I think it before the, uh, during the Oscars, it, I think it, its uh, total was $76 million. And Apollo 13, like, was twice that, $167 million. Wow. So Apollo 13 also did really, really well. 
Uh, we do that every week, and we haven't done it this week, talking about the box office winners of the year. Do you want me to read them real fast, the top ten box office? Sure. There was Die Hard with a Vengeance, number one. Toy Story. We didn't mention Toy Story at all. Oh, oh my God. I was hoping we would. We mm, can't, we can't yeah. let this year go by without. We yeah. can't. So Toy Story was number two at the box office with $354 million and, you know, 15 years ago. GoldenEye, a Bond film, Pocahontas, Batman Wait, Forever. Wait, Apollo 13 was three. Apollo 13, I'm looking at, was uh, number six. Uh, oh, with, I'm looking on Wikipedia. I've got um, Die Hard, Toy Story, Apollo 13, GoldenEye, Pocahontas, Batman Forever 7, Casper, Waterworld, and Jumanji. That's the top ten here. Okay, yeah, I have the same ones in a little bit different order. Yeah, so I, I don't know, maybe, I don't know where I'm getting these totals from. This is a, yeah. it's a book called Blockbuster. And he taught, the interesting about Waterworld, uh, one of our readers asked us to mention Waterworld and the fact that it was like, you know, here we are two years after Dances with Wolves, Kevin Costner's triumph, and now he's like all humiliated by, by with Waterworld. Although he didn't yeah. direct it, he, 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 he was behind it completely, and he's the reason that it got made. The reason is that it was considered to be such a disaster now, not only because it's a really, I guess, crappy movie, but because it, it almost it went over budget. Um, it was originally budgeted for $100 million, and it eventually cost $175 million, which in today's dollars would be $260 million they spent on Waterworld. Yeah, no, and it was a total disaster. <laughs> It wasn't though. I mean, it was it was a top ten film. It didn't make back what it cost because it did cost too much. But um, uh, and it's not a great movie. It's a it, but it's a decent B movie. But a decent B movie yeah. B, B movie shouldn't cost one hundred and seventy. Yeah, I don't think he That's wanted right. it to be a B movie. I think I think. With, uh, they, they, they had made it to be they were going to build a video game around it and there was going to be a Universal City attraction and everything built around Waterworld. So they had all the, the high concept stuff in mind for it. Eventually with the DVD and ancillary, ancillary rights and stuff like that, I think it did break even, but just barely. I thought he had a kind of an eco message in mind too. Like I think mm-hmm. I thought it, he wanted mm-hmm. it to be a sort of a semi-important film. And that it, yeah. it just, it rest, he, he, he lost control of it along the way at some point and it became... It, it's the kind of project that you never want to be in if you're a director where it 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 you know spins spirals out of control money wise because people will never forget that well mm-hmm. they do if you're Jim Cameron that's the funny thing is that um, but he doubles the, it. the whole the whole story about Waterworld leading up to it was how much it was costing and it seemed for the longest time that the same exact thing was going to happen to Titanic but of course he makes a billion dollar money maker so that changes the narrative quite a bit sure. but it's just um, if waterworld had added 500 million you know that wouldn't we wouldn't be talking right. about it mm-hmm. i don't know what went wrong, what went wrong with it i don't i mean just maybe the script or i guess it's just really really difficult to film on water and they ran into all kinds of problems logistic problems uh, yeah. just filming on on the surface of the water but back to toy story go ahead and you want to say something about toy story correct no, I'm just glad that it was brought up because it, okay. it, um, it, it, I think an entire generation of people were raised on, on, on Toy Story, and it sort of speaks to the rise of Pixar and how important that has been in terms of animation and also in terms of Oscars over the years. Mm-hmm. And Toy Story was sort of the start of all of that. He never really, yeah, and and, and now we're still in the we're still living through the Pixar era. You know, all that was all started then. And I think that Toy Story would have won Best Animated Feature had that there obviously had there been that category, and people always talk about that. It got a special achievement award that year. 
Yeah. Oh, is that You're right. right. If, if it had had a, if there had been an, an an animation category, it would have been a a shoe in. Yeah. Is that why they 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 built the category? Um, I thought it was Beauty and the Beast, but that was yeah. that was that last. No, that was 1992, that was a, right? Yeah. So it maybe like there a, was a maybe there was a quota they had to meet. There had to be a certain number of, of uh, animated features in, that were eligible before they would have the category. I maybe. think it was something like that. It seems like I read maybe. it someplace. I don't know. Probably. It was nominated for three Oscars. It was nominated for best um, score and best song and best screenplay. To- Toy Story was, but it didn't win any of them. Um, yeah, it's good that they did that because as Pixar went on the rise, you started to see more and more, um, you know, great animated films that were worthy of awards. They just, for some reason, they've never been able to do that with these big effects movies, these superhero movies. They've never been able to make the Academy uh, treat them legitimately as, um, for instance, they have the Academy has best animated feature. It has best documentary feature. It has best foreign language feature. But they won't go and do best special effects-driven feature, which is really what they should do mm-hmm. because it is its own genre by now, you know. And they're so different from other movies, and it's so hard for people to give them the um, uh, respect that they deserve. There are Not that there are that many great special effects-driven movies, but when they are great, they're incredibly great. Yeah. That would be like, an in- mm-hmm. interesting year this year because um, Gravity would probably win that. It's not going to win Best Picture, but it might win. Um, yeah, so Best Director. It might win. One could possibly win Best Director. Is that um, what you were going to say, or am I finishing your sentence uh, wrong? I, yeah, it might. It could, but I, I doubt it will. I don't think. I think Steve McQueen's going to win Best Director, but we'll see about that. Um, I'm looking at Box Office Mojo, and it says Waterworld cost 175 million and only made 88 million domestic. So I guess mm-hmm. its international gross was 175 million, which made up for it. But back then, especially as you can see, I'm pretty much adhered to that old tradition of just counting the domestic. That mm-hmm. kind of a loss is a really big deal. Yeah, yeah, it was widely seen as a bomb. I was surprised to see that it had made so much ultimately. But you know, even back then, I think a movie story was pretty much written on opening weekend, and if it bombed opening weekend, it was quickly forgotten about. Yeah. And it's a it's a cooler headline to say that it's a bomb than than it eventually made some dough. Because look and, at look at Braveheart. Braveheart cost seventy two million and only made seventy five million. Right. That's right. hardly that, a success. I know. That's what I'm thinking. That's why I. I, I it's why I'm, I'm just baffled a little bit by some of the things that we're reading online that the readers are saying and some of the feedback you're getting about Braveheart. I think there are just a lot of fans of Braveheart who are kind of maybe making excuses for it. I don't know. I don't know what their thing but is. That's crazy. I know a lot of people are just really fond of Braveheart. And that's fine. But, but that's the thing is, I think you're you're trying to write a narrative based on the idea that it's not a very good movie because you don't like it, and yeah, that's you're right. That's yeah. fair, but I don't. I, well, I mean, it's it's reasonable, but it's I don't. I think it's dangerous to start to to do that. I don't. I don't. It's hard to get into people's heads and to decide mm-hmm. why they like a movie or why they don't. Um, I don't know though. As, as we're talking about this and we're rounding out the podcast and we're ending it. I feel like this fucking Apollo 13 should have won <laughs> because it made 172 million compared with Braveheart. Yeah, exactly. I'm really I'm surprised that it didn't. It seems you. like a slam dunk yeah. to me because it, it, it. But you got me to think about it in terms of how unuplifting it is. You know, Braveheart dies. He dies. The guy dies in the end, but it's still he. You know, his spirit lives on, kind of thing. And oh, uh, but it's such a disgusting martyr type thing. Well, yeah, so but you it's, just sort of, that's you know, to it's me, very, it is it's anyway. very Jesusy, and people get into that. I guess 
guess um, so. You know, there are a lot of people who do get off on that, but it's not as if, I mean, Apollo 13 has a happy ending. It's because they didn't make it to the moon. The fact is that what the, it's the same, has the same ending as gravity, where she makes it back to Earth. That's a pretty uplifting thing. Mm-hmm. When you when you rescue when you find a way to rescue yourself and make it back to dry land, that's a great thing. But you also have to factor in, like you had to factor in with Argo, love for Mel Gibson. You know, right. you had yeah, to, yeah. even if you go back and read the reviews of Braveheart, they're not that great. You know, some of them are good; they're okay. They're not like raves. You know, um, but. But the thing about what we saw last year, and you can't forget it, is that people feel like they know actors. They know Mm -hmm. them. People who work with them know them. People who, you say the Academy's all actors. And the public, they know them. Everybody felt like they know Ben Affleck. And, oh, what a good job he did on Argo. And same with, with Mel Gibson. It's like they just get wrapped up in their celebrity love. Here it is, 2013, and I'm always surprised, but still, by the level of celebrity love there is you know like um when jessica chastain uh you know pointed to an article that i had written and that was like that will probably be our biggest traffic day all year uh you know trent reznor retweeted once a um a uh link of mine and and that was the biggest traffic day it's like the celebrities have such sway over people you know even if they don't Mm -hmm. over us they have incredible sway Mm-hmm. And if you put a, you got to always, and we, we know now moving forward when there's, other than George Clooney, who's the only one I've seen ha- not do that, when there's an a-, a really popular actor in the Oscar race and they're close to winning Best Picture, there's a really good chance they're going to win for all those reasons. Can I just say about George Clooney and Monuments Men, I have been skeptical of that movie, but when I saw that I went to see Captain Phillips today and I saw the preview on the big screen, that movie improves immensely when you see it on the big screen. It looks looks a lot more important than it does on YouTube. Yeah, that's probably going to be the big last-minute you know, coup for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's probably going to be that one. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see it end up in the Best Picture um, I won't be Circle. surprised to yeah. see it win yeah. Best Picture. Oh, I don't know. Hey, I hope not. Not with the not with the other the other great movies we've seen this year. Unless it unless it just really deserves it. But I just I'm just so overwhelmed with what a great year this is turning out to be with Gravity and Twelve Years of Slave. I know, but as and we see Captain by Captain Phillips by 1995, it doesn't matter, does it? How many no. great. Sometimes sometimes it's a liability yeah. to have that many great movies. I think it is. Yeah. You know, I was, another another uh, harebrained theory that I have is that when you have five great, we have four fantastic movies that are really highbrow and sophisticated. You split the highbrow members of the Academy four or five different ways, mm. and you're only left with the twenty five percent of the Academy who may not be so highbrow, who may be middlebrow. And they right. and so those twenty five percent all go for the middlebrow movie. And whereas the smart people all go split off in four different directions for the four smart smart movies. And so the the, the votes get split that way. And so you just have this core group of kind of dumbasses who vote for Rocky and Braveheart. Braveheart. <laughs> <laughs> You're never gonna leave poor Rocky alone, are you? <laughs> no, really. Well I, I you know uh-huh. Uh, it's just funny to me. Yeah. I know you kind of like Rocky, don't Dude, you? Dude, Rocky's uh, a masterpiece no, by I, comparison. It's fine. It is what it is. It's it's a yeah. lightweight kind of entertaining picture. It's just funny that it still sticks in your craw. It's better than the, a lot of the recent Oscar movies that have won, though. Really. It's better than freaking Chariots of Fire. That's way better than that's, Chariots of Fire. Oh. That's true. I'm, but I'm just looking in, in comparison to All the President's Men and Network right. is what I'm thinking. You know, Those are heavyweight, serious, groundbreaking, long-lasting kind of movies, and Rocky. He's a, a feel-good love story. That's pretty much all it is. 
Yeah. It would be great if they voted for movies like um, All the President's Men, but they don't. Uh, that's why, uh, you know, everybody is starting to suddenly have these last-minute doubts about 12 Years a Slave now because um, I took somebody to see it, and they said that... Uh, uh, it was not a movie. It was hard to watch. It wasn't a movie that during the holiday season you're going to rush to see. It wasn't a movie that you were going to recommend to your friends necessarily because you can't recommend it to all your friends because it's so hard-hitting and depressing and a lot of people aren't going to want to go there. And, you know, like it or not, that's potentially why it could not win Best Picture this year. Right. And you have to look, even though it has history, his, making history on its side. You know, you have to pre- be prepared for that to be the inevitable conclusion. The same way that Amour, or the word got around about Amour, which was justified. Yes, absolutely, exactly. that it was a difficult movie. It was a hard movie to watch, and it was going to it was going to get it was a downer. You know, right? And I so remember nobody, when we thought so a lot of people in the Academy probably didn't even watch it. Probably not, and they're not going to watch Twelve Years a Slave either. They're just not going to want to go there. Mm. They watch The Butler so they don't have to feel guilty about what we've done to black people. They don't have to go see 12 Years a Slave. Right. Uh, and once and I, I don't mean that as a slam against The Butler mm-hmm. at all, but mm-hmm. Butler's a movie that leaves people feeling good about themselves. Right, for sure. And, yeah, I think it'll do pretty well with Academy voters. Um, 12 Years a Slave, once people get an idea of um, how violent it is, although we, we have to keep saying the only thing that makes me hesitant to jump on the 12 Years a Slave won't win Best Picture bandwagon is that... No, partly, yes, but also it won the Audience Award in Toronto, and that's a pretty big deal to win the Audience Award, to be the most popular movie that people saw. Beating mm-hmm. Gravity, you know. Mm-hmm, yeah, good point. So. And it's not as if the Academy is squeamish about violence. I mean, they nominated Taxi Driver. They nominated The Departed. They nominated Django, a lot of violence. Django, sake. exactly. Yeah, and so there's Brian enough members of movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> but there are enough of those really gung ho guys in the Academy who who don't who are not bothered by the violence at all. Well, I tell you, Chai Wittell is probably going to win uh, for mm-hmm. actor. And if they give him actor, they might not feel like they have to give the movie best picture. It's such a tough year in so many categories, isn't it? A, a well, month we, if, ago, if we might not, have thought it was things were sort of sealed up, but now we've got Chiwetel, and we've got um, um, Tom Hanks, and we've got Tom who Hanks, else? I know. and uh, Joaquin Phoenix. No, if it's not um, Twelve Years a Slave for Best Picture, I don't know what it will be for Best Picture. You know, like I don't. There isn't a movie. I was just talking to David Poland about this. There isn't an Argo lurking in the woodpile right now. There isn't a. Um, of course, at this time last year, we didn't think Argo was lurking in the woodpile either. Unless so, it's Monuments Men. Unless it's Monuments Men, but nobody's seen it. By this time, we'd all seen Argo and written it off as being good, but not good enough to win. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden, oh, Argo, it's Argo. But we haven't seen any of the a lot of these other movies. I'm just talking about the movies we have seen, what could win. I don't think that, as good as it is, I don't think Captain Phillips can get enough votes to win. Uh Gravity. No, United. It's sort of in the United ninety three vein. You know, it's a, just a little bit too documentary. It's like a documentary, and yeah. those movies don't often win. No, and it's also not a feel good, uplifting ending. It's a pretty complicated, sad ending. Yeah. For Captain Phillips, um, incredible though, incredible movie. Uh, it's going to be one of those movies that I'm. A, I, I'm a think when it when if I'm surprised it hasn't happened already, but I think there's going to be a little bit of controversy about what side you want to take about Captain Phillips in the same way that there was about uh, Zero Dark Thirty. But you're not sh- because I'm afraid what's going to happen. I'm afraid is that a lot of conservatives are going to get behind it because it does sort of have. They're not behind it. Way. They're against it. Actually, Fox News is against it. Yeah, yeah they're oh, okay. It. 
They're probably. All right, I didn't hard. know that. Well, that yeah. that's a good sign then, because nobody wants to be nobody wants to to like the movie that the the, the conservatives. No, like. they like it to be clear cut us versus yeah. them. You know, yeah. they're the monsters, mm-hmm. we're the heroes, and this movie is, dwells in gray areas. Uh, okay, I'm surprised. I'm surprised to hear that, but I'm glad to hear it too. Yeah, I, 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 I don't think that's good for the film. I don't think any controversy is good. I think um, a, a movie becomes toxic at a certain point, and people want to stay away from it in terms of of elevating it as what they think is the greatest thing. So even though right now it's just the conservative screwballs that are attacking it, I have a bad feeling that it might be it might stick. We're just lucky to have it. I'm just so glad that we're alive to see these movies. That, that we're this is a great time to be alive to be watching movies, isn't it? You've been listening to episode 48 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Ryan Adams and Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. We will be back next week with another episode, and you can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast. 